0: This week's episode is brought to you by Audible. Audible has over 180,000 titles to choose from, all compatible with iPhone, Android, Kindle, or your MP3 player of choice. For listeners of the show, Audible is offering a free 30-day trial membership, complete with credit for a free audiobook of your choice. You can cancel any time and keep the free book or keep going with one of Audible's subscription offers. Go to audiblechild.com slash japan to claim your offer. This week, I'm going to recommend Without You, There Is No Us by Suki Kim. Miss Kim spent a year as an English instructor for the elite students of the Pyongyang University of Science and Technology, teaching the sons of the North Korean elite English. Her memoir is a fascinating look into the modern hermit kingdom. I'll be teaching a course on modern East Asia next year, and I plan to use parts from the book to teach my students about North Korean culture. Go to audiblechild.com slash japan to claim your copy. Hello, and welcome to the History of Japan podcast, episode 151, The Birth of the Samurai, part 6. We left off last week with Prince Mochihito's decision to launch a rebellion against the Taira. Proclaiming Taira rule over Japan to be illegitimate, Mochihito called on the enemies of the clan to rise up and join him in crushing the upstart Taira. The response was, to say the least, tepid. One monastery, Midera, a volunteered its sohei to the cause, but others, most notably the wealthy temple complex of Enryakuji, refused to do so. Scattered bands of Minamoto retainers joined the fun as well, but lacking unified leadership or even agreement over whether it was possible to beat the Taira, turnout was weak. Mochihito, now perhaps regretting his sudden streak of bravery, was forced to abandon his home in Kyoto, because one person who was not responding to his call to arms in a tepid way was Taira no Kiyomori. Kiyomori dispatched a levy of troops to Kyoto to seize the errant prince, and Mochihito was forced to bolt. He made his way to Mida, which had the twin advantages of being a supporter of his cause and being pretty nearby, located near Lake Biwa to the northeast of Kyoto. There, Mochihito tried to rally the troops, repeating his call for support from other temples and from the Minamoto. Again, he got some responses, notably from Sohei contingents from the temples of Nara to the south, but his numbers were still pretty thin. Once again, with Taira forces hot on his heels, Mochihito was forced to retreat. He and his followers abandoned Midera, which was burned to the ground by pursuing Taira. Mochihito fled to the southeast this time, crossing the Uji River and setting up shop at the Buddhist temple known as Byodoin. However, this time he did not quite flee fast enough. The Tyra were just on the other side of the Uji River, and preparing to try and force a crossing and bring the renegade prince down. What followed was a battle between Mochihito's army and the pursuing Tyra forces. Mochihito's troops trying to prevent a crossing of the river, the Tyra forces trying to force one. Mochihito's troops, by all accounts, fought very hard. Ripping up the planks of the nearest crossing over the Uji River, they forced the Taira to try and ford the river on horseback. However, Mochihito was simply outnumbered, and in many ways outclassed. Though his Sohei foot soldiers were numerous, they lacked the training and high-quality equipment, not to mention the tactical versatility of mounted samurai. Leading the Taira charge was one Ashikaga Taratsuna, distant ancestor of another future shogun. I bring him up for two reasons. First, Taratsuna, who was by all accounts a ferocious warrior, was basically the one who ended up deciding the battle. He and his followers did succeed in crossing the river, and thus split the attention of Mochihito's army, which had to break itself in half to both contain Taratsuna and prevent the rest of the Taira from crossing. Second, as those of you with particularly good heads for genealogy might recall, the Ashikaga clan was descended from one of the clans in this conflict, but not the one you might think. Tadatsuna was actually a distant relative of the Minamoto, much like his distant descendant, Takauji, who would, two centuries down the line, use that Minamoto ancestry to claim the title of shogun. However, Taratsuna's branch of the Minamoto family had sworn an oath of loyalty to the Taira, and it was an oath Taratsuna attended to keep, even at the cost of fighting his own relatives. I bring the story up because, once again, it helps illustrate how fluid and unbound loyalties are at this point. Here is someone who, by any traditional metric, should be siding against the Taira, but who is standing with them anyway out of a sense of personal honor. It helps drive home how dependent all of these alliances and relationships are on individual character and on the personalities of the people involved. Had Taratsuna been a different kind of person, this all might have turned out very differently. But Taratsuna was who he was, and he did what he did, and as a result, Mochihito's army, split between trying to counter two different crossings, fell apart. The Taira made it over the Uji River, and once that happened, the result was a foregone conclusion. Very few of Mochihito's supporters made it away, though some, especially the large contingent of Midera Sohei, did. Mochihito himself escaped the initial battle, but was captured a few days later. Either under orders from Kiyomori or taking individual initiative, the Taira commanders executed the troublesome Imperial Prince. Then, this time definitely under orders from Kiyomori, they went and did something extremely stupid. You see, Kiyomori was furious to find out that Sohei from the southern city of Nara dared to join in Mochihito's rebellion, and he decided to punish the temples involved. He dispatched a massive army to Nara, seeking retribution. This was enough of a threat to get all of the Nara temples to band together, pooling their Sohei troops in defense of the city. Kiyomori's forces, however, still had the advantage of better equipment and better training, and that turned out to be decisive. Commanded by two of Kiyomori's sons, the Taira blew clean through the ditches, the walls, and the other defensive works set up by the Sohei. Once inside the city, they started lighting fires. And of course, in a country where most of the construction was wooden, those fires really caught. When the ash settled, the vast majority of the city of Nara had burned. Some of the largest Buddhist temples in Japan had been consumed in fire, and their treasures destroyed. In particular, the massive Buddha statue of Todaiji was consumed in fire. The current Todaiji Buddha is from several centuries later. Now this may have slaked Kiyomori's thirst for vengeance, but it was a PR disaster, All throughout Japan, warrior families began to talk amongst themselves. Who does this nutcase think he is? Moving the capital? Murdering imperial princes? Burning down Buddhist temples? Is he trying to bring down the wrath of the gods on us, or is he just completely power-mad? In eastern Japan, news of the events in Kyoto and the surrounding area convinced the enemies of the Taira that now was the time to strike. Kiyomori, though, was not aware of these enemies, so far as he knew they were his friends. However, the Hojo clan, who counted as their hostage the eldest living son of the old leader of the Minamoto, well, they could see which way the wind was blowing. Here's where we have to back up a few steps. Remember that after the 1159 Heiji Rebellion, the leader of the Minamoto, Yoshitomo, was assassinated by Kiyomori. His adult sons were killed as well, but the younger ones, the ones that had not fought, they were spared. Eldest among them was a boy, all of 12 in 1159, named Yoritomo. That boy was now the heir to the Seiwa Minamoto and leadership of the Minamoto families. Yoritomo's continued life, however, came at a price. He was to be a hostage living with a family allied to the Taira, the Hojo who were distant relatives and long-standing allies of the Taira clan. Their leader, Hojo Tokimasa, was considered trustworthy enough to be responsible for something so important as keeping an eye on the Minamoto heir. Tokimasa appears to have carried out this responsibility as directed for almost two decades, and I say appears because records of his life at this time are kind of thin. But in 1179 he started to get increasingly nervous about his close alliance with the Taira. Kiyomori was becoming increasingly erratic and paranoid, and Tokimasa began to worry that if opinion turned against the Taira, the Hojo would be caught in the crossfire. Now, it just so happened that Tokimasa had a young daughter named Masako, at this point only 23, and by all accounts, gorgeous in the extreme. Yoritomo, by 1179, was 30. Tokimasa, mulling it over, decided that the two of them combined would make for a mighty fine insurance policy. A marriage between Masako and Yoritomo would provide the Hojo with a potential out. Should Kiyomori get too unstable or the position of the Taira start to deteriorate, the Hojo would be in a good spot to jump over to the Minamoto. Minamoto. The wedding was carried out in early 1180, and just a few months later, word came from Kyoto of Mochihito's rebellion. Now, Tokimasa was not ready to abandon his existing allies just because some dumb prince had written a mean letter about Kiyomori. His caution, it turned out, was rewarded when Mochihito's rebellion fizzled out on the banks of the Uji River. However, in the wake of Mochihito's defeat and the burning of Nara, Rumblings of discontent continued to build. In the end, Tokimasa decided it was time to strike. He encouraged his young charge, Minamoto no Yoritomo, to claim the mantle of leadership in the rebellion and openly turn against the Taira. Yoritomo, being young and restless, and probably a little miffed about the whole thing where his dad got executed, didn't need much prodding. In 1180, he declared his support for a rebellion against the Taira, and called on loyal Minamoto followers to join him. With an army of loyal followers supplemented by the armies of the Hojo, he began to march west and encountered his very first Taira army ever. Kiyomori had dispatched a trusted subordinate to stop the Minamoto. Yoritomo, young and full of vigor, went on the attack and promptly got his butt kicked. At the Battle of Ishibashiyama in September 1180, the enemy commander seized the initiative and attacked Yoritomo in the middle of the night. Yoritomo, young and inexperienced, had no idea how to respond. His army went into flight, and he fled with them. This will prove to be something of a defining moment in Yoritomo's career. Despite being heir to the Minamoto legacy and the great-great-grandson of the great Minamoto no Yoshiie, the first-born son of Hachiman and warrior extraordinaire Minamoto no Yoritomo, was actually pretty garbage as a field commander. Er, maybe not garbage, but he lacked a certain zest for field command. So, like many great leaders of history, Yoritomo developed a skill after this first outing that would serve him well, the ability to delegate. He rarely took the field himself, instead trusting in more martially inclined followers to act as his military leaders. It's interesting, honestly, that the man who is going to tip the scales really decisively in the direction of warrior government will himself be a pretty mediocre warrior. And then again, maybe that's not that surprising. After all, administrative skill is not the same thing as military skill. And it wasn't like Yoritomo was short of talented commanders to send out in his place. In particular, shortly after his declaration of rebellion, his two brothers made their way out east to join him. His full brother, Minamoto no Noriori, appeared from God knows where. Seriously, there's no record of what happened to Noriori between 1159 and 1180, but apparently in the interim he'd become something of a badass. He rapidly became one of the best Minamoto field commanders. I say one of because Noriori was good, but he was pretty thoroughly outshone by Yoritomo's half-brother, who had not even been one year old when he went into exile in 1159, Minamoto no Yoshitsune. Yoshitsune had been exiled to a monastery allied to the Taira cause. However, by the time he was 15, he either fled the monastery or was exiled from it. He made his way north to Mutsu province, where he was taken in by none other than the northern Fujiwara. In Hiraizumi, The flourishing northern Fujiwara capital, Yoshitsune lived comfortably under the protection of Fujiwara no Hidehira. I'm honestly not sure why Hidehira decided to take the kid in, but as we're going to see two episodes down the line, it seems he had something of a soft spot for Yoshitsune. Supposedly accompanying young Yoshitsune was a sohei, a warrior monk named Benkei, one of the most legendary figures of Japanese history. Now, little is known of Benkei that doesn't smack of overdone legend. To be honest, I wasn't sure if I even wanted to mention him because of how legendary his status is. I wasn't sure how much was real. But in the end, I couldn't justify leaving him out. Supposedly, Yoshitsune and Benkei started running together after Benkei, as a test of his own strength, blocked a bridge crossing and tried to duel anybody who attempted to cross. He defeated 999 comers, but the 1,000th, young Yoshitsune, successfully beat him. Benkei, humbled, pledged loyalty to the young man and became his stalwart companion. When Yoritomo raised the banner of rebellion, Yoshitsune and Benkei went south together to join it. Yoshitsune out of loyalty to his half-brother, Benkei out of loyalty to Yoshitsune nor were Yoritomo's two brothers the only ones to rise up. Many of the other members of the broader Minamoto clan did as well. This was particularly true in eastern Japan, far from both the Kyoto Imperial Court and the Taira Power Base at Fukuhara. However, not all who rose up were particularly well disposed to the idea of taking orders from young Minamoto no Yoritomo. In particular, two of Yoritomo's relatives made their own bids for leadership of the rebellion. First was Yoritomo's uncle, Yukiie. I won't trouble you much with this one because Yukiie is very quickly going to have his butt handed to him by a Taira army and see his bid for leadership of the rebellion come to a swift and inglorious end. I mention him only because he will be back later, and he will be just as unlucky. Second, and far more dangerous, was Yoritomo's cousin, Minamoto no Yoshinaka. Up until this point, Yoshinaka had already had a pretty interesting life. Things started off pretty bad for him when his father was killed in 1155 during a power struggle between Minamoto family members. In fact, his father was actually executed by Yoritomo's elder brother. Young Yoshinaka was smuggled to safety by loyal servants and grew up in the Kiso Valley, in what is now Nagano Prefecture. There he built up his own network of allies, including two of the most talented generals of the age. First was Imae Kanehiro, who had been Yoshinaka's milk brother, meaning that his mother was Yoshinaka's wet nurse, and who grew up to be his most trusted friend. Second, and far more enigmatic, was one of the few women to feature in this very dude-heavy story, the talented warrior Tomoe Gozen. By the way, Gozen is just a title. Tomoe Gozen means something like Honorable Lady Tomoe. According to the tale of the Heike, she was both Yoshinaka's confidant and general, and his concubine and lover. Yoshinaka would actually prove to be a threat to the ambitions of Yoritomo because with these two at his side, he started defeating Taira armies that came his way, and taking territory off of the Taira. What's going to follow for the next year or two is the kind of warfare that cries out for summary. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to describe in brief what Yoshinaka and Yoritomo are getting up to during this time span, and we're going to close out with a brief description of what warfare between samurai looked like in the 1100s. Next week, we'll focus on the more iconic battles that actually ended the war. Yoritomo was up to, well, from an external perspective, not much. After his first abortive attempt at military command, he holed himself up in his capital and began focusing on that least sexy of military tasks, administrative reorganization. For a capital, by the way, he chose a place not far from the power base of the Hojo, but with a Minamoto history all its own the small town of Kamakura. Kamakura, remember, is the place where Yoritomo's great-great-grandfather, Minamoto no Yoshi'ie, had first set up a shrine to honor his patron god Hachiman. Symbolically, it was a great choice for a base. Yoritomo's control of Kamakura allowed him to claim the mantle of legitimate heir to the Minamoto legacy, and convince more and more Minamoto family members and sympathetic allies to come over to his cause. Politically, it was a great choice as well. Kamakura is only easily approached from the coast, meaning that there were only two paths into the city, one from the north and one from the west. Both were relatively easy to defend. It's also not far from Izu, about 57 miles or 93 kilometers, meaning that Yoritomo was still close to his most important ally, his father-in-law, Hojo Tokimasa, but far enough away that he didn't look like a puppet. From this carefully laid base of operations, Yoritomo began amassing more and more followers, and ensuring the loyalty of those followers, both with promises of future gains from fighting the Taira and from disbursements of wealth garnered from taxation of the locals. To put it simply, he was buying loyalties wherever he could, preparing for the long game and betting that when it came down to it, a more secure hold on the loyalty of his followers was worth more than immediate military gains. As we'll see, he's absolutely right. The military initiative, meanwhile, lay entirely with his cousin Yoshinaka. Yoshinaka's forces went on the attack early launching themselves into the nearby province of Echigo, and crushing the Taira-aligned ruling family in the territory, and then defeating a further Taira relief army sent to drive them away. Throughout the next two years, Yoshinaka continued to skirmish with the Taira, and won more often than he lost. Even when he was dealt serious setbacks, he would always seem to find a way out. For example, the Fortress of Hiuchi, one of Yoshinaka's central positions, had been considered impregnable because of its location atop a craggy mountain and because of an artificial dam constructed around it. However, in 1183, a Minamoto turncoat showed the Taira a way to breach and drain the moat, opening the way for an assault on the fortress. Yoshinaka, even with this setback, still managed to escape with most of the garrison forces. So Yoshinaka was a slippery general so why didn't he just steamroll the Taira and ride a tidal wave of their corpses all the way to Kyoto? Well, partially it was because the Taira had talented commanders of their own, but also because Yoshinaka always had to keep a part of his force in reserve to deal with other potential threats, including the threat from his cousin. Yoritomo and Yoshinaka were not under any illusions about family loyalty, Clearly, each had marked the other as a competitor and a threat. The two men were just as likely to rip into each other as they were to join forces and attack the Taira. Indeed, for the first few years of the war, which we now call the Genpei War, from the combined Chinese character readings for Minamoto and Taira, it looked like the war would become both a Minamoto civil war and a war between the two major clans of Japan. If nothing else, Yoshinaka's position in Central Japan and Yoritomo's in Eastern Japan meant that if Yoritomo wanted to get to Kyoto, he had to go through Yoshinaka. In 1183, the two cousins sat down to try and work out their differences, and did come away with an agreement to focus their energies on the Taira going forward. However, Yoritomo, distrusting his cousin, insisted on taking one of Yoshinaka's sons as a hostage for insurance. Yoshinaka, unable to fight both the Taira and his cousin, had to agree, but was enraged and humiliated by the prospect. The conflict between the two was thus postponed, but Yoshinaka's humiliation meant that the issue was far from over. Finally, let's talk for a bit about what warfare looked like during this period. First, armies are relatively small. A large band of samurai would number somewhere in the low thousands. These are not the massive conscript field armies like the ones levied by Rome or Imperial China. The reliance on expensive professional horseback warriors kept armies pretty small. A large army was just too expensive to be effective. This was especially true because one of the defining features of the samurai during this period was the horse. Heian samurai were overwhelmingly a mounted force, which kept armies mobile, but again made them expensive. The primary weapon during this period was the bow. Horse archery, a skill imported from Korea during the waning days of Korea's unification wars, was the premier military skill of the samurai. Other weapons were used. Samurai certainly had swords during this period, for example, but the bow was the go-to weapon of the age. Many of the legendary military tales from this time described not feats of great swordsmanship, but particularly talented samurai making what amount to trick shots. When two sides joined battle, they would begin by firing volleys of arrows back and forth. Sometimes members of the opposing armies would challenge each other and engage in duels as well. So again, this is not the well-oiled military machine of ancient Rome, which, for example, privileged formation fighting and group tactics. Medieval samurai resembled more of a horseback-armed mob, Than an organized and regimented army. This is not to say that the armies of the time were not capable of impressive maneuvers, just that it was a bit more difficult for commanders to whip them into shape to do it. When one side or the other eventually broke and ran for it, the other would pursue on horseback, aiming to kill or capture members of the enemy force. Importantly, unlike the European chivalric tradition, There was no notion of ransom to incentivize capture. You could not surrender and then buy your own freedom or have one of your relatives buy it for you. That said, warriors on the losing side, especially talented ones, would usually find themselves with an offer to come over to the winners, something which, being pragmatists, they usually took. The samurai class at this point has already begun to develop its highly refined notion of personal honor but that honor is always going to prove somewhat flexible, especially if option B is death. This model, horseback ranged combat followed by pursuit, was common but not the only method of combat. That's what field battles looked like. However, dismounting to defend a fixed position was not unheard of, and Heian-era samurai did have some complex defensive works to call on, the least of which were man-sized screens and shields, designed to protect your own troops while enabling them to shoot back. So that's warfare in a nutshell. Next week, we'll see more than our share of combat. We'll cover the bloody years of 1183 to 1185, and the ultimate conclusion of the Genpei War. However, that's all for this week. Thank you very much for listening. Special thanks this week to Tom Wassman for donating to support the show. To join him, to find out more about this week's episode or any other episode, or to submit ideas for future episodes, check out the podcast webpage at www.historyofjapan.wordpress.com or our Facebook page at facebook.com slash historyofjapanpodcast. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next week for The Fall of the Samurai, Part 7.